It didn't go to space, but it did dig deeper than most other rockets do. Yeah, we knew that once the countdown hit zero, excitement was guaranteed. We just didn't know exactly what form that excitement would take. This is something like. Um, right, we're just uh, reallocating more uh, server capability uh, to be able to handle load here. It's uh, really going going crazy. So, um, yeah, I'm obviously very excited to um, have. Uh, Governor DeSantis, uh, make this up. <laughs> Twitter space is crashing while DeSantis is making his lame announcement for president. is so peak and on brand for both DeSantis and Elon Musk that I'm pretty sure we can just start and end it. <laughs> hello, hello. Thanks for tuning in. It's Mr. Manger. Wishing you well, all the best, better than ever. So there it is, the news is in. Ron DeSantis has stepped into the race. <laughs> I don't know, it seems like there is a lot to be said. I might struggle a little bit to keep it focused because there's really so much out there that can be referenced in one setting. So with regard to Elon Musk being a high-risk individual, we're going to trace back when the SpaceX explosion occurred. We have linked in the show notes companion piece, the YouTube link. And in the comments is some really impressive PR. Now, if this is not official PR, I don't know whether to be impressed or to be skeptical. Perhaps both. But it says in the comments, one commenter says, for people who were confused about the people cheering when the rocket exploded, the test flight was not about getting the rocket to space. It was about gathering important data that you can't just see with your eyes. They were expecting the rocket to have some sort of malfunction in part of the test flight. They definitely did not expect the launch pad to get damaged that much, but they learned many things from this test flight. Also, the explosion was intentional, as the flight termination system was triggered, but it exploded much later than expected. Starship failed to separate, as the rocket was not at the correct point in flight. Not because the physical mechanism failed. The reason that Starship was in the wrong place was due to the engines unable to gimbal. This was caused, most likely, by the hydraulic power unit being ripped off earlier in flight, it is possible that, that the one of the engines that exploded caused all the engines to be unable to gimbal. The engine exploding could be caused by debris from the pad getting destroyed, but there is no evidence according to SpaceX. Hope that SpaceX can use the data to improve their future starships. If you have any opinions, please feel free to share them. So there's a couple responses to this comment that I found um, pretty amusing, needless to say. Here's one. But I am shocked that in the era and decade of AI and VFX, CGI, PC simulations, you even need this kind of money wastage. Last I checked, a good PC with Flight Simulator by Microsoft could teach flying a plane. Also, simulations 
You could put digits and coordinates and key points, and you get the result or close to the results. And here's another one. Yes, this test rocket worth millions was meant to explode after we've sent multiple rockets to space. I'm sure there's some other goodies out there in that, but, you know, I just wanted to get to the gist. Now, as it happens, I long sat on some material I intended to convey just about a year ago in which I, w I wanted to pose the question, should Governor Ron DeSantis stay in Florida? And at the time, DeSantis was running against Charlie Crist. Then, as now, the situation was DeSantis seemed to be at the peak of his career. Of course, you know, there's an eye on 2024. It's no surprise that's, you know, next year. So DeSantis's first term expired on January 3rd of this year. And in Florida, a governor can serve two consecutive four-year terms. After the non-consecutive term, they could re-enter and run as governor all over again. It seemed um, DeSantis outperformed expectations. I did, did have something to say about the expectations at the time. Um, there was no guarantee he'd be re-elected without a fight, but he ended up as a standout victory in the Red Wimper, let's say. I mean, which otherwise was a Red Wimper. For a while... Believe it or not, Charlie Crist was narrowly in the lead, according to one of the polls from a year back. At the time, you had a poll with DeSantis narrowly trailing Donald Trump as the preferred nominee in the Republican field for the 2024 presidential election. Trump being Trump, of course, stated he'd win one-on-one, -on -one, take DeSantis out, and reminded all of us that he was crucial to DeSantis's 2018 victory as a gubernatorial candidate. Now, Trump made this bizarre jab at the governor, calling him gutless for not disclosing whether he'd taken a booster shot. I mean, consider the base. These aren't exactly the most pro-Fauci types. So, I mean, I, I wonder what they really have to say in defense of Donald Trump and his connections to Big Farm, which, I mean, obviously rattles the base, you'd think. Maybe not his base. I don't know what's behind the quick ability to just shrug that off and forgive it all, or to just dodge it away as a minor issue. Now, there's another poll that I've got linked up with DeSantis leading against Trump among likely Republican voters. He's leading 39-37. So, of course, DeSantis and his prospects rest on leading his state from the COVID-19 restrictions, propelling Florida to a model state representing a return to normalcy, not only for the rest of the United States, but I would say for the entire world. Now, to put that in perspective, as he launched that whole campaign, he endured intense criticism and the name Death Santis, but he confidently rolled back the shutdowns and the mask mandates. Now, some time ago on the Alex Jones show, Attorney and political figure Robert Barnes claimed that it was already decided that, that if Trump ran again in 2024, uh, DeSantis would be the running mate, and apparently that meant DeSantis would stay out of running as the man on the top of the ticket. Now, since then, 
you had the FBI's raid on Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago, which somehow boosted his numbers. After this happened, a Politico morning consult poll showed Trump gaining a 10-point bump amongst Republicans. Of course, this seems to lend credence to Trump's favorite talking points. The system is rigged. The establishment is corrupt. And it's another witch hunt. Now, whether factual or frivolous, they undoubtedly feed this MAGA orbit. Long tired of elitist politicians in kid gloves. Sounds understandable. Of course, left-wing forces, hardly less tribal as they may be, presume guilt in any form, and they presume a warranted raid. Some even insist that raid is the wrong word. Here's an old tweet from David Axelrod. He says, One thing is very clear. Garland would not have authorized this raid, and no federal judge would have signed off on it if it weren't significant evidence to warrant it. So that was from August 8th, year 2022, shortly after it happened. I think this is a good opportunity to go through Ron DeSantis' record as a U.S. congressman. He did have some hawkish tendencies, but he also favored diplomatic negotiations with Iran and opposed the wars in Ukraine and Yemen. Now, there's something to be said about personnel as well. As president, Donald Trump appointed generals and advisors that rejected his own America First agenda. They even played shell games with him. The National Security Advisor does not require confirmation by the Senate. Who did Trump appoint? None other than John Bolton. From the said shell games of State Department diplomat James Jeffrey, did General Mark Milley circumventing the chain of command with secret calls to China, a disjointed administration created a breeding ground for mixed messaging and secret agendas? Only in Trump's last gasp could he appoint Colonel Douglas McGregor, well known for his restraint and prudence. And who could forget Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks, who pushed the infamous flatten the curve line to justify COVID lockdowns and various restrictions, as was later admitted. I was able to catch a tweet by Jeff Tucker. He says, Before posting my final review of Deborah Burks's book, I offer you one more excerpt on how she doctored the weekly COVID reports to the states coming from the White House. You won't believe this one. So there's a there's a screenshot that Tucker took, and it says, After the heavily edited documents re- were returned to me, I'd reinsert what they had objected to, but place it in those different locations. I'd also reorder and restructure the bullet points so the most salient, the points the administration objected to most, no longer fell at the start of the bullet points. I shared these strategies with the three members of the data team also writing these reports. Our Saturday and Sunday report writing routine soon became write, submit, revise, hide, resubmit. Fortunately, the strategic sleight of hand worked that they never seemed to catch the subterfuge left me to conclude that either they read the finished reports too quickly, and that's where the screenshot seems to end. 
On to the better appointments, Dr. Scott Atlas was eventually brought on to the White House Coronavirus Task Force, but he often found himself at odds with the Fauci-Burks Alliance, which rejected efforts to allow natural immunity and focus protection. These measures were smeared in emails between Dr. Fauci and Francis Collins, conspiring to discredit the Great Barrington Declaration. Governor DeSantis may well have distinguished himself in this key area by suspending state attorney Andrew Warren, who refused to enforce restrictions on abortion and child sex change surgeries. The question is, would his actions be so reproducible at the federal level? If so, the messaging of the federal officials could reshape the handling on a number of issues. Now, like it or not, whether the entity is a state or a private corporation, they tend to put lots of stock in what the alphabet agencies at the federal level recommend. Who's going to make these appointments? The President of the United States. Donald Trump did not succeed in coherent messaging in this respect. His usual fallbacks on witch hunts and the like may have sustained a defense among the MAGA crowd, but perpetually playing defense is strategically ineffective. We have yet to witness DeSantis backed into such a corner where he cannot quip his way out and gain the upper hand, where he must adopt desperate platitudes in his own defense. But time will tell. It's highly likely that we would run out of resources to meet all the government's obligations in early June and possibly as early as June 1st. Absolutely not. There's not some trigger that all of a sudden happens at one moment in time. Everybody's relying on Janet Yellen to tell us this magical day. Um, show us. Show us the math. I no longer trust, like, the Obi-Wan Kenobi of wrong answers on the economy to be able to tell me when the default... So an article recently came out on The Hill by Emily Brooks, entitled, GOP Skepticism Grows Over Yellen's June 1 Debt Ceiling Deadline. It says Republicans in the House are signaling growing skepticism that the June 1 deadline, Treasury Department Secretary Janet Yellen, Janet Yellen, set for lawmakers to raise the debt ceiling, is really set in stone. Disbelief in the date is fueling the right flank's argument that Republicans should not give in on their debt limit increase demands, viewing Yellen's threats as creating manufactured deadline pressure. Representative Matt Gates, Republican from Florida, stood up in a House GOP conference meeting Tuesday morning and suggested that Republicans call in Yellen to have her show her work and reason behind the June 1 date he confirmed to the Hill. Representative Ralph Norman, Republican from South Carolina, separately suggested subpoenaing Yellen to see her reasoning. It might be pretty impressive if you could even show your work for this. After all, wasn't tax day hardly a month ago? We're going to get nerdy here and reference a book by Henry Hazlitt, his classic, Economics in One Lesson. He has a chapter called The Mirage of Inflation. So here's a piece from it. The most obvious, and yet the oldest and most stubborn error on which the appeal of inflation rests is that of confusing money with wealth. 
Real wealth, of course, consists in what is produced and consumed, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the houses we live in. It is railways and roads and motor cars, ships and planes and factories, schools and churches and theaters, pianos, paintings, and books. Yet so powerful is the verbal ambiguity that confuses money with wealth, that even those who at times recognize the confusion will slide back into it in the course of their reasoning. Each man sees that if he personally had more money, he could buy more things from others. If he had twice as much money, he could buy twice as many things. If he had three times as much money, he could be worth three times as much. And so to many, the conclusion seems obvious that if the government merely issued more money and distributed it to everybody, we should all be that much richer. Hazlitt says, But now in accordance with our lesson, let us look at the longer consequences. The borrowing must someday be repaid. The government cannot keep piling up debt indefinitely, for if it tries, it will someday become bankrupt. Hazlitt continues, Yet when the government comes to repay the debt it has accumulated for public works, it must necessarily tax more heavily than it spends. In this later period, therefore, it must necessarily destroy more jobs than it creates. The extra heavy taxation than required does not merely take away purchasing power. It also lowers or destroys incentives to production, and so reduces the total wealth and income of the country. It's time for Jeff Herbert owns the winners! Money is that thing, uh, that item, that people use in one half of every exchange they make. So it's that one generally used facilitator of exchange or medium but as you say, banks are uh, able to uh, create uh, more claims to the gold coins than they have gold coins available. Subjectivity of value, people can change their minds uh, since value is just personal. You just experienced Jeff Herder owns the winds! Roscoe Jefferson, Empire of Liberty. This has been another episode of the Austro-Jeffersonian Empire of Liberty podcast. I'm Mr. Manger. Thanks again for listening.